I felt represented, where I was like, oh, there's this person who understands, you know, parts of me and is absolutely okay with me and how I express myself here as a leader. And Welcome to Design to Be Conversation, presented by Design to Be, and hosted by Design to Be founder and CEO, me, Rachel Weissman. Design to Be is a community for designers to grow their emotional intelligence. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how investing in their EQ has impacted their design career. In today's episode, I speak with Wendy Johansson. Wendy is the head of UX Apprentice Program at Amazon. She is a global product experience leader and entrepreneur focused on the intersection of product and user experience to scale high-performing global teams. She started and built her career as a UX leader at successful early-stage startups, co-founded WiseLine, a global product development company, and served as Global VP of Experience at Publicis Sapient. Wendy champions women and people of color in tech, and volunteers with organizations for the humane treatment of animals. We dive into what it means to lead in tech and design as a woman and a person of color, how identity plays a role in being a leader, and how intentional leadership can drive cross-functional influence through curiosity, collaboration, and communication. Welcome, Wendy, to the show. Yeah, happy to be here. I think this is a topic that is so important to all designers when we think about having empathy and emotional intelligence about the people we design for. We get it, and then we go into Figma or Sketch or whatever tool we're using, and suddenly we forget to apply those same things to ourselves and our teams. So I think this is a great topic to have. I love it. So when we were chatting a bit over email, and you responded back with a bunch of different topics (laughs) that we could dive in on, which made me very excited, we landed on this intersection of leadership, but specifically from a lens of being a woman and a person of color. And uh, we'll dive more into those specific lenses in a bit, but I'd love to take a step back for folks who are maybe a bit more junior in their career or could get a bit of color of like, am I a leader? Like (laughs) what's going on? Can you share the first time for the first moment in your design career that you felt like a leader? Yeah. Actually, the first time I felt like a leader was when I was super sick. Back in maybe 2008, I was leading the redesign of the, we'll call it the marketing website for a B2B company that I worked for. And I got really, really sick. And it was like, no, it's just a cold. We're going to finish this whole website, relaunch this whole rebrand, everything, and we're going to get it out there. And don't worry, it's just a cold. And then it got worse and worse. And it turned out I went to the hospital. I had pneumonia. And they're like, just like, you're not working. You're going to lay in bed until you get over it. And I was miserable, like really bad pneumonia. And I was super worried that this release wouldn't go out. 
<laughs> and my team, like they sent some, like some, cause I lived in San Francisco and I worked in Mountain View, which is about an hour and a half South. They sent coworkers in San Francisco to my house with soup and books. And they told me like, don't worry, your team's got it. They're going to launch the best website you've ever seen in your life. Everything will be just fine. And I was like, wow. Okay. And when I got back to work <laughs> two weeks later, I think it was either our CTO or our CEO. And he said something to me that kind of resonated that now I look back at it. And he's like, yeah, your, your team wanted to make you proud because this was a project you were leading and you let them so far on it. Like they weren't going to let it fail. So you never had to worry while you were sick. And that was the first time like the word lead or led was used in any context with me where I was just like, wow. You know, it was a web developer and marketing people, designers, and the only people who reported to me were actually the designers, but I didn't really understand that leadership had kind of cross-functional influence until then. And so that was that was really cool. And also it shaped a lot of different views I have about work and health and work-life balance and yeah. team and how we all take care of each other and, and how you have to really garner that trust and intentionally build it. So now I look back and I see that I did intentionally do something, not mm -hmm. for that distinct purpose, but it helped me be more cognizant of what leadership looks like and how every single action you take kind of builds up that bank of leadership and trust. I love that story because I feel like some of the best aha moments as a result of reflection is like, oh yeah, I was doing that all along. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and to your point in in the beginning of the question of like a lot of you know younger, earlier career people might say like, you know, when am I a leader? Is it when I have a manager title or, you know, mm -hmm. a lead title or a director title? There's something that I really like about my current role at Amazon. And Amazon has a bunch of leadership principles, but people see them and they're just like, oh, when I interview for Amazon, I'm interviewing for a fit with their leadership principles, but I'm not even a leader. Maybe I'm just an early career designer coming in. Like, why do I have to be measured against their leadership principles? Because Amazon believes that everyone is a leader no matter what you're doing and who you are whether you're in HR or you know you're in marketing or you know you're you're a junior designer or you're a director like you're leading the thing that you own and the scope of responsibility for that and that's pure ownership that you have so i really like that frame is they say you know everyone is a leader day one I've realized I say this a lot because I've gotten feedback from the community that I say this a lot, but I think it's important just to own it. So what you said completely gave me the chills. And what I've realized is it only happens when people speak this like utmost truth. It's manifested as like truth chills, but, <laughs> but I digress. But I'm curious, what are those leadership principles that folks are getting measured upon? I actually have it on my desktop and I'm going to look at it right now. I actually have it as a sticky note on my Mac desktop because there's 14 leadership principles, but the ones oh. I think that probably most apply to designers universally, number one, actually the first leadership principle of all of Amazon is customer obsession. Like mm. you should be obsessed with the customer and make decisions for the customer. I love to hear that as a designer. Like I honestly never thought of Amazon as a design company until mm -hmm. they reached out and I started chatting with them and I learned so much about them and it's just... You don't hear this same kind of like, I guess, buzz about Amazon and industry. <laughs> Most people think like Amazon's really tough place. It's really cutthroat. It's very brutal. And I think it's just because they really try to focus on the things that they need to measure against to know that everything they do is a success. And I think that gives them a reputation of being very, very tough. But I think it's the same kind of discipline that really helps give people another of their leadership principles, ownership. 
that's mm. something that you come in with. Like they expect you to have onus of your own time, of you know your own decision making, of your own communication. Nobody's going to handhold you through any of this. And so I think it, in particular, makes a very tough environment for young early career designers, product managers, engineers who are coming in. But also it, it kind of biases towards a certain type of person, right? The kind of person who comes in like super gung-ho, like I'm going to do this thing and I want to have the freedom and ambiguity to do it my way. There's a couple of other ones, uh, kind of more on the kind of typical scale side of values, like people with bias for action is important. People who have backbone and can disagree and commit. They're also looking for people who want to learn and be curious, insist on the highest standards and all of these other things. And it's something that they've created a really interesting interview process for where they're interviewing you for these leadership principles and you either meet the bar for them or you raise the bar. And so what they're looking for is 50% of the leadership principles, you should raise the bar and 50% of the leadership principles, you should be at the bar. Nobody joining the company should lower the bar. And they're actually mm-hmm. just interviewing you for that. Like You barely get interviewed for your design portfolio or presentation or anything when you come in. So it's super interesting and, and wildly different from everything else. It's fascinating. It, it very much aligns with everything that we're advocating for with design to be So I'm happy that we're having this conversation. I'm curious throughout your own career, maybe outside of Amazon or even still within Amazon, if there are other specific skills in, to be a design leader that must develop in order to really flourish in being in more of a, a leadership role. Yeah, I think a lot of folks will turn to things like business value of design, be able to be fluent in that, make things measurable, because a lot of times design can be very subjective to people, especially, you know, CEOs and VPs of different functions. But the thing that I think that design leaders should come in with is an open sense of collaboration. In the mm-hmm. same way that design is never a silo role, you're not going to go design one thing Because that one thing you do, that one thing you literally are designing on your own actually has to be integrated with, you know, different parts of a user flow. So it actually has to be well thought out and you have to talk to other people who are designing other things. But as a design leader, you need to encourage that collaboration and communication with your cross-functional stakeholders. So you need to be talking to your engineering peers about why the designers worked on something that you know, looks like it's a couple more weeks of work, but actually makes a bigger impact on, you know, usability or delight for the customer. You have to talk to your product manager, partners and counterparts to help them understand where the customer voice comes in. Because PMs, I would say, and UX designers often fight over who gets to talk to the customer because PMs naturally are a little closer, but technically your designer should be closer to the customer. They should be hearing this directly. And then just coming in and really having this sense of collaboration and spirit and inviting your partners who don't understand design the same way you and your team do to come on that journey with you. Because they don't care about so much the what of what your output is and what that final design that their team needs to implement is. What they care about is why wasn't I consulted? And that's really what it comes (laughs) down to, like knowing people and in that way, kind of like catering to their egos, but also just 
just being collaborative in that sense of like, you know, let's consult them early on in the middle of it at the end, you know, even before it's a real idea, let's, let's consult our counterparts and get their opinions and get their feedback and seed these ideas mm-hmm. in their head that, you know, the next time we do design something, we do want to kind of go in this direction and let's look for an opportunity for that, or let's look for an opportunity to do a different kind of research or user validation and really help people join you on that journey so that they feel like they're a true partner rather than, Hey, this team of people over here, you know, they dress awesome, but they keep throwing stuff over the fence and we have no idea why they're doing it. They're wearing all black. Uh, Exactly. Very serious. (laughs) A lot of what you've alluded to also with collaboration and with folding people into the process is building trust. And I'm curious, anything else in the realm of how trust you've seen throughout your career play an important role with now you navigating to being in a quite leadership role and how relationship building and folding people in and everything that you've talked about has helped lead you to where you are today? Yeah, trust is important. And I think to get to the basis of trust is to understand there's something called, I think it's the love languages, which is mm. basically uh, you can take this with you know your, your romantic partner and basically understand what your love language is. Is your love language giving and receiving gifts? Is your love language physical touch? Is it acts of service? You know, when they make you lunch and bring it to your desk because you're on Zoom meetings all day, like whatever that <laughs> love language is, like that's what speaks to you. And mm-hmm. people should have compatible or have a good understanding of each other's love languages. I put trust the same way. Trust is so complex that what means trust for, for example, me, really good at getting into conversations with complete strangers and just going into like deep dive topics without batting an eye. And so people, because I'm in particular female and Asian and I look non-threatening and I have purple hair, they feel relaxed when I dive into things and they're like, oh, she's so nice. And, you know, she got very deep and she's so real. And I think a lot of people tend to think like, wow, we're building a deep relationship there because like for them, that's an unusual thing. But for me, like that's how I communicate, I guess. And for me, it's almost like small talk, <laughs> like asking you, like, what are your deepest hopes and dreams? Like that's total small talk to me. And I very well may forget your name five minutes later because I'm not great at that. But other people will feel like, wow, I've really built this connection of trust with Wendy. And now I know her and I'm just like, oh, no, no, like I'm a totally strange person. Like you don't know very much actually. And I think it's understanding people, right? They all have their own different things and Mm -hmm. understanding what builds trust and what that trust looks like. And a lot of it to get, you know, more psychological about it, it, it comes from how they were raised. Like, you know, the early childhood formative experiences they had with trust with adults really helps them form what that means. Like one of my actual problems with this is I don't really have great boundaries. I will push and ask all sorts of weird questions to people. And they're just like, oh, you're quirky and unusual, but non-threatening. So I'm going to give you answers. But no, it's just, I don't know boundaries. That's all. It doesn't mean that I'm deeply interested. So I think it changes for different people. And that's the key of it is understand your way of being Mm -hmm. and also recognize and adhere to the fact that it doesn't work for everyone. There are certainly people who are very annoyed by my way of being, of asking questions. And rather than the questions of like, hey, how are you? What did you do this weekend? You know, how's your family? Like, I never ask about anyone's family, like ever. And I think it offends some people who have families, but instead I'll ask them about their hopes and dreams and deepest fears and deepest failures. And I know all about that instead. I love it. I love it. It's honoring your own authentic expression and really leaning into that. 
leaning into that, but also treating it like a bank. I think I, I mentioned this earlier is it needs to be a bank that you continue building. I think mm-hmm. there's there's a saying that, you know, you can't give anybody any type of critical feedback until you have five positive feedback moments with them. So for every five positive coins, mm-hmm. only then can you withdraw to give them one piece of critical feedback. And so you really kind of have to build this bank of trust. I love it. I'm a very visual person. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, <laughs> I see this bank and these coins so clearly. I want to dive a bit deeper into the other parts of our topic for today, specifically around being a woman in POC and the overarching umbrella of woman POC, any of these is identity. And so I'm curious how broad strokes, how identity plays a role in being a leader. But then also from your perspective, how being a woman and a person of color has played a role in your own experience of being a leader? Yeah. I think that our current generation of people in technology, in particular design and technology, have a really kind of not the best still, not like the most ideal environment, but a pretty positive environment that they're growing their careers in because these conversations are being had because Mm -hmm. they know what representation sounds like because these conversations are open to not be whispered and, you know, to be shouted out in hallways or at least on Twitter. So (laughs) in the time that I grew up in my career in the two that early 2000s, it was a completely different time, which impacted my sense of identity. I was always the first woman in any startup that I joined. Maybe there was somebody's admin or an HR person that was another woman, but I was definitely the first woman in a technology role on Teams. And I remember one of my first jobs, like there was this guy when I started day one, he came up to me and he was different than everybody else because they're all wearing t-shirts and they all look like they're, you know, 22, 23 wearing t-shirts. And he comes up to me and he's in this crisp button up white shirt. And he's like, I put a shirt on because of you. So you better be good at your job. And I was like, what? And they're like, oh yeah, that guy, like he just doesn't wear a shirt all the time. And then we told him there was a girl coming into the office and now he has to wear a shirt. And I was like, Wow. That for me was like one of the first times I remember being called out like, oh, you're different than us. And it was for me to internalize and never say anything because there's nobody to say anything to. And that constantly happened and it continued happening in different ways that I didn't realize until reflection later was I was always the first woman. And oftentimes I was the first non-white person in my Silicon Valley startups. So that was a very, I think it forced me to not think about my identity because I was just in this environment, just trying to always fit in. Like I grew up as a tomboy. So it seemed kind of natural for me to be like, oh, I can fit in with the guys, like, you know, brother, sister style and, you know, Mm. give them the same kind of ribbing and jokes that they're giving me. But it wasn't actually until two things happened at some point in my startup. So I started a startup in 2013. And at some point in the startup, we hired another woman in the leadership team. And she was much older than me. She had more experience than me. And she was in a completely different function. But it was then where I was like, oh, there can be women in executive teams. Like, I haven't seen this. Like, sure, I heard back in the day of Mercer Meyer and, you know, some other folks that are kind of big and namely in in industry, Mm -hmm. but like that seemed like unreachable and untouchable, right? Because mostly they were white women. And then in 2019, which by the way, was only two years ago, so not that long ago, did I finally work with somebody who was completely different as a design leader. His name was John Maeda, 
And he is a Japanese American design business technology leader. He was my CXO. I left my startup to work with him because I thought he was a really interesting person. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And it certainly was in so many ways. That was also the year and the next summer in 2020 of, or the next spring in 2020, when we really started talking about race in the US. We had George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. We had all these things happening. And John was so good at making space for these conversations for all of our teammates across company. We had hundreds of designers and also non-designers join in on these conversations. And that made an impact on me that his representation as a basically non-homogenous other dude (laughs) in leadership and in design leadership really made an impact and created space and helped me really see that that mattered both as Mm. him as a person of color, but also for me as a woman where he always said, you know, he was setting up all of his succession plans to always be two women because if it was two women in his succession plan, then one of them would make it and it would always be a woman who succeeded him. So I thought that was super interesting and very different. And I think that for the first time I felt represented where I was like, oh, there's this person who understands, you know, parts of me and is absolutely okay with me and how I express myself here as a leader. And like, that was very also formative, again, only two years ago. So Mm -hmm. this was very different from like the early 2000s when, you know, some guy accusationally told me that he had to wear a shirt because they hired a woman finally. And he called me a girl at that point. So like these things you internalize and you don't really think about it. So a lot of reflection on that. But um, I do think in this time, a lot of designers who are working at kind of these more outspoken companies they're able to have a voice and really be cognizant of who they are and the representation that they seek. Or folks who, when I want to acknowledge your courage, because from, I'm not a person of color, I'm a white woman, but I have been in more meetings that I can remember, the only woman in the room. And it is just such a, there is a balance of being a more junior designer woman in the room also, but just this feeling of being invisible. And so for anyone that's listening, that is maybe navigating those situations, do you have any words of wisdom for like advocating for yourself of if you feel like an outsider of how you can fold yourself in all while still honoring your unique you-ness? The (laughs) advice I would offhandedly give is for somebody who has more confidence in who they are, which this took me like 20 years of my career to get there. So let me try to think back about what I would tell like 2005 or 2004 me, who was very shy and completely different. And I think if you had asked her to be on a podcast, it'd be like, no, thank you. Bye. Um, <laughs> so I, I think having a partner helps. So whether that is another designer at your level that you feel comfortable talking to about situations where it's like, oh, I came out of that meeting and you know I got shut down again or nobody let me talk, even though I tried to cut in and I even raised my hand or find somebody in an equivalent role in your company, like a product manager or somebody in marketing even. It doesn't have to be a designer. Or find someone outside of your company who you feel is representative. You can go on places like ADP list now, which is totally democratized mentorship and go find somebody who you feel like you could relate to or represents you in whatever 
dimension that is and have somebody safe to talk to. I think that's the important thing is when I was younger, I was not confident enough in my own thoughts and my own being to have done or said anything about these situations. But I think having a partner, not so much to hold you accountable, but to be able to bounce your thoughts off and give you a little more courage to be like, you know what? That isn't right. I shouldn't take that. Let me think about what I should do next. It's hard and and it promotes more like inner criticism when we're stuck in our own minds. But yeah, I love what you said of, okay, how can we like learn with and from each other? So it's not just us in our own heads and getting down <laughs> on, e- on each other and trying to lift each other up instead. That it's a great segue. One thing when we were talking a bit about this topic, you mentioned the idea of creating space for other design leaders. And I feel like it's very much aligns with your current role at Amazon with the apprenticeship. And so can you share some examples of how you have created space for design leaders to succeed? Maybe specifically women, POC designers. I've quit so that they have to step up. No, <laughs> I mean, for real, I have, but that's not why I quit companies before. But I, a couple of things I've done is tying in trust in our conversation there earlier. You know, trust doesn't come easy, but I tend to be a lot more lax in, not lax, I tend to give more trust upfront to women and people of color. I don't need them to prove themselves like 10 times harder than anybody else does. I actually try to do the opposite is when I see somebody and we're like, oh, you know, there's like, 20 more of you in this company. I need to raise the bar on them to see where they can do something different and be above and beyond. But when it comes to a lot of women leaders and people of color, they just see an opportunity. And I try to be generous with opportunities. And I'll, I would like to say that it's because people have done that with me, but that's not true. <laughs> um, it's more just the opposite of that is that people were not generous with opportunities with me as I kind of grew in my career. And I don't want anybody to have that hard of a time. I want them to go solve harder, more interesting challenges. So let me, for lack of a better phrase, let me ungatekeep that and give them that access so that they can go prove and do something way better than I ever could because I was fighting a different battle. They don't need to go fight the same battle as me because that's no progress for anyone at all. I love that for the managers and maybe the folks that have a bit more of a seniority role. For the designer that's listening, that's like, okay, Wendy, no one's opening doors for me. (laughs) What are things that folks can do? This actually could span no matter which level you are. What are ways that designers can open doors or encourage their managers or their directors or um, anyone senior than them to open doors for them to create that space? I would say probably at a high level, something that applies to everyone is be curious about other people. So if you're not really sure what your PM does, other than tell you that you know they changed their mind again about <laughs> design and they'd rather you do something else, be curious. Go ask them and go understand like who they are, why they're doing product management and what that means and, and what curiosities they have about design and how you can help intersect those two things and work better together. I found that a natural curiosity for other people is... It's not something most people can turn down. It's incredibly positive and it's contagious because it kind of just expels kindness where you're just like, oh, I'm curious. Like, how do you do this thing? And who are you and why? Like, I'm just curious. And as designers, we should be curious, not only about, you know, the people we design for, but the people we design with. 
I love what you said. The curiosity expels kindness. And I so, so, so resonate with that. And it also promotes creativity and inspiration and so, so, so many other things. But we'll leave it at that. One other element of this I want to dive into that you touched upon is the role of intentionality. So I'm curious if you could talk a bit about how setting an intention or being intentional is an essential aspect to creating these experiences or being a design leader. Yeah, you have to approach being a design leader with intention, meaning as much as any of us are at any given point feeling imposter syndrome of just like, wait, I lead a team of people and I built this product for people. Like, what? How's that happening? I'm not sure I'm ready for this. Like, wait, who is ready for this? We have to approach it with the intention of doing better for our people. So I think as any UX or product design or creative or you know any other term and title that exists out there, but basically any other design leader, you are leading a team and the biggest impact you're going to have is not on the product, not on the company, not on your manager for sure, but on the people that you lead and the example that you set day by day. So you have to intentionally consider the impact you'd like to leave on them. You know, If you're going to work with them, let's just say on average two and a half years, what do you want that person to walk away with? Do you want them to f- walk away with, you know, having had opportunity, having seen what the closest thing to equity that, you know, their direct manager can offer them is within their influence? Consider what you want your legacy with that person to be in those two and a half years on average and try to aim for that every day. As an example, early on in some of the startups I worked at, we were able to create these wonderful, curious people who got to see the challenges of building from zero to one, whether they were engineers or product managers or designers. So many of those folks I worked with in early stage startups ended up going to either found their own companies, which was super cool, or going on to be other leaders. Like one of them now that I worked with in 2013, he's a VP of engineering in Mexico because our team was located in Mexico. And he's amazing because there are very few people like him who were able to build a product to scale like that from 2013 in Mexico when when mostly Mexico was seen as kind of offshore outsourcing for small products. So being able to understand the intention you want to have and the impact you want to have on people, I think really helps you set that tone of what space you make for them. So as an example, when we started our company in 2013, myself and my three co-founders, one of the things that we realized was, you know, this was our second time around we wanted to have people be able to go create better things. We wanted them to be the next generation of like, you know, I'm trying to think of good startup founders that I can name, but wow, none of them come to mind because all of them are bad in some way. But <laughs> but we want them to go ahead and create kind of that next generation of, you know, the startup ecosystem in Mexico. And so we sought out to give them that. So we gave them more generous equity in the beginning so that, you know, if the company did something, it would super impact their lives and also help them become angel investors back in the ecosystem. And we gave them so much ownership, which was very unusual for in particular to the Mexican technology culture back in 2013. And so I think that continued to impact and set the tone for how generous we were trying to be with giving people ownership. And as we continue to hire and they became managers and directors and so on, they were in turn generous in the same way to create space for people to do things as wild as, you know, say, I don't want to be an engineer anymore. I actually want to be a designer. It's like, okay, well, like go try it on design team. If it doesn't work, you can always come back. So (laughs) we were able to create space for people to do this. And I think that spirit 
of ungatekeeping, just to use that phrase again, really help folks kind of find themselves and find the things that they can intentionally create for other people. So much of what you said is a core part of what we talk about in with Design to Be. And right now with us recording, this won't be released for a bit later. We're just about to kick off the Design to Be training fall cohort. And when this will go live, the cohort will be underway. But the last module in the training is called Design to Be Impactful. And it completely aligns with everything that you just said of how can we bring more... After doing all of this inner work of growing our emotional intelligence, now it's, okay, we have a choice of now through having this awareness of ourselves and awareness of others, what kind of impact do we want to have on the people we work with, the products we create, the services we create, Mm -hmm. the experiences. And it's a choice. It's a choice. But only with more awareness can you be intentional to realize that it is a choice. Yeah. And I think giving people like a framework to start with. So for example, any new designer that works with me, that is my direct report. I usually set up a, you know, what is your two-year plan? Like, what do you want on your resume about your two years that you're about to spend here? Like, what story do you want to write about that? And we want to start with that kind of end goal of just like one day it's going to be on your resume that you worked at, you know, Wendy company doing XYZ. Like, let's work backwards from there and see what we can create out of that. And usually it takes them down a slightly different path as they go and work backwards and decide like, whoa, this is interesting. Like there are all these other things I could do. And I was like, great, do it. Let's see how it works for you because there's always a path back. And it's created, I think, things that oftentimes as in particular as women and people of color, we lack the imagination to imagine that we could achieve those things. Mm -hmm. And so giving them that path of like, look, you think your path is this linear thing, but along the way, like, let's oscillate and go take a look at all these other things. And maybe you'll find a new path that just kind of surpasses any dream or idea that you've ever had. A dirt road down a forest that has never been before. (laughs) Yeah. Under under a bridge. (laughs) Much more interesting clearing than what you thought you would see. Completely. I want to shift to a couple wrap-up questions. So everything that we've spoken of today, and we touched on a wide variety of different topics under the umbrella of leadership, all bubble up into emotional intelligence. And I'm curious from your perspective, why designers should invest in their emotional intelligence? Because no one else speaks the same language you do in beautiful things. (laughs) you need to use a lot of emotional intelligence to convince people about why that's the best thing for the users that you've talked to. You need to spend a lot of emotional labor, frankly, (laughs) of your own in, in being able to take feedback from people about, you know, maybe this isn't the most technically feasible and that might be the best design right now, but you need to find a compromise between best design and most technically feasible and be able to compromise and work with people there. So I think emotional intelligence is core to seeing your designs become a reality. Otherwise, you're just an AI generate you're just an AI that generates really cool designs, but nobody can talk to you. And that doesn't mean your designs are going to be implemented that way. And so I think it's super important to use that emotional intelligence to be able to communicate, to persuade, to understand your own triggers and also mm-hmm. your own, you know, your own potential in everything that you're doing. And 
a lot of, I guess, my basis for how I think of designers as a design leader is I often don't talk about craft. And the reason for that is I just default and assume everybody's freaking amazing in their craft. And that's something that, you know, should have been the basis of whatever criteria we hired them for. So I'm going to go work with them on everything else that isn't taught in school or in a boot camp or in online course or in the work that they've done. Like it's the other stuff that I'm going to go spend time on teaching and talking about. And that they'll learn at design to be. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One last question. If you can ask one thing of the folks listening as it relates to leadership under anything specific that we spoke about, something that they can maybe get started right after they take out their headphones and close whatever app they're using and get going on with their day. What would that be? Yeah. Leadership is an authority. To go back to what we said earlier, leadership, I think good leadership starts with curiosity. So when you're done with this podcast or you know, when you're done with whatever it is you're doing while you're listening to this podcast, go and get to know someone that you don't really know so well on your teams and go be curious about their job and, and talk to them and get to understand them. Because also during this time where we're all mostly still online and not all going to offices, and you may find that some people are just really siloed or lonely or you know just needed some change in routine. And getting to understand them and what they do can also give you a new perspective. So go talk to somebody and be kind and be curious. Thank you. I'll take that advice as well. Well, thank you so much, Wendy, for your time and imparting much wisdom and insights. I really enjoyed our conversation, felt very free-flowing, which I really loved. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And I think that this is actually probably one of the most important courses I've heard about, which is uh, starting designers out on their own emotional intelligence. Like That's the biggest kind of duality you can do in helping both yourself and your career. You heard it from her first. (laughs) Yeah. Keep it going. (laughs) (laughs) That wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you're curious for more ways to invest in your EQ, to be a more empowered, educated, and effective designer, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E.com. You can take our design process EQ quiz or sign up for a newsletter to receive the latest Design to Be community building, live offerings, and self-inquiry guidance directly to your inbox. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen. Be sure to share this podcast with a fellow designer who's interested in investing in their EQ. And again, thanks so much for listening.